This is God's word. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you and I'm old and gray and behold, my sons are with you. I've walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed, uh, and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And sold them, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they uh, cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel, and, deliver, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Naash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now, behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, and asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet uh, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by 
ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we, uh, we are so thankful for your holy word and uh, that teaches us the truth. And uh, Lord, we are here willing to hear the truth. We want to hear the truth from you. And, and we believe um, that that truth will lead us to our Savior, to Christ, um, whose love is precious to us. And uh, so, Lord, um, open our, our minds, our hearts to understand the things that you'd say to us now. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, we are in our third Sunday of Advent. Advent is the four Sundays uh, leading up to, uh, up to Christmas. And uh, for many people, uh, they think of uh, Advent as a time to prepare for Christmas. But that's really what Advent's not about for us because uh, Christmas is about Christ's first coming and Christ has already come. So uh, Advent is really a time where we are preparing for Christ's second coming when he will come again. And that means that the real topics of Advent should be death, judgment, heaven and hell, the ultimate matters of human destiny. Advent is about preparing for the final judgment. And it's one of the most fundamental Christian beliefs that every single person, each person sitting here, will appear before God and stand before him and give an account for all the deeds that they have done in this life. And you might not like that thought. People might not like the thought that they'll have to stand before God and give an account for the things that they've done in their life. Uh, we might not like the thought of death. It's still going to happen. Death is unavoidable. And judgment is unavoidable. And final judgment is one of the great statements of human dignity. Because final judgment uh, says that your life matters deeply to God. The things you say, the things you do, the decisions that you make. You think of all the billions of people that live in the world. And little old you up in Bellingham sitting here in this church, God cares about your life. He takes it so seriously that there will come a day that he will tell your story publicly. And that day will be the most important day of your existence when the creator of heaven and earth will turn his careful attention on your life. And it's remarkable that the vast majority of people spend decades of their lives not even thinking about it. They never ask the question, what does God think of me? And you might say, well, that's because most people don't believe in final judgment. Why would they ask that question? They don't think it's true. But if they even thought about it for a little bit, they would know, of course, there is a judgment coming. You look at our culture right now that has so much moral outrage in it. You know, whether it's about racism or whether it's about abortion, we all know that there is a moral code that we are living under. And that moral code, where did it come from? It didn't come from science. Science can only tell you how things are. Science tells you how the world works. Science can never tell you how the world should be. The, the value judgments, that is a spiritual reality that we are all intuitively aware of, that there is a moral code that we all live under. 
And if there is a moral code, the most reasonable thing is that there will come a time where we will be evaluated according to that moral code. And the Bible is absolutely clear that the moral code came from our creator and there will be an accounting and it matters deeply to him. Now the reason I bring, up this, uh, bring that up with this passage from uh, 1 Samuel 12 is that the form of this passage is a trial. It's a courtroom. It's a judgment scene. And there are judgment scenes like this uh, throughout the Bible that are like precursors of the final judgment. And you see how it says there in verse 3, this is Samuel's final speech, and he says, Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointing. He's testifying. This is, a, this is a courtroom scene. This is a judgment scene. Or again in verse 6, And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness. I think this passage gives insight into the final judgment that you and I will all have to endure in our future. And so today, today I want to explain a few things. This is like some of the most basic, important information you have to have as a human being in God's world. Is that a judgment is coming and you must know about it. And so there are three um, key pieces of information from 1 Samuel 12 that I want to give you about judgment. And this is what they are. Your life will be measured against God's law. Your life will be measured against God's acts of salvation. And your life will be measured against God's grace. Three key pieces of information. Your life will be measured against God's law, against God's acts of salvation, and your life will be measured against God's grace. And my hope here is to first give you clarity, and that that clarity about what will happen will be sobering, but also that it would lead you to hope, and the hope of Christ and the hope of the gospel. So, three points this morning from 1 Samuel 12. The first is this. Your life will be measured against God's law. And Samuel begins this trial by uh, evaluating his whole life from when he's a child all the way into old age against the law of God. You see what it says if you look at verse 2. It says, And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. Now what Samuel's doing here is he's quoting a number of places from the Old Testament law, the, the law of Moses from Exodus and Deuteronomy. And he says, you know, whose oxen have I taken or whose donkey? That comes from the Ten Commandments where it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's ox or your donkey. You shall not want their stuff and take it from them. Or he says, I've not taken a bribe from anyone. That comes from Deuteronomy. There's laws about being a judge in Israel. And, and what Samuel is basically saying is before the Lord, measure my life against God's law. Now, in our culture, how do we measure our lives? What do we measure our lives against? It's usually things like, how successful have I been? Did I fall in love? How many mountains in the Cascades have I hiked to the top of? You know, this is our picture of the good life, and how has it measured up? And we have to be clear that that's not the standard that God uses, Jesus has summarized God's law with these two commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two things that God cares about. 
He doesn't care about how good looking you are, how much money you made, how smart or athletic you are, how popular or charming or funny you are. The world cares about all these things. God is not impressed with any of those things. He cares about two things. Do you love the one who made you, who made your person uniquely? Are you grateful to the one who brought you into existence? And second, that creator has sent people into your life who are your neighbors. He had sent them there for you to care for them. And have you loved and cared for the people that he sent in your life? This is the law of God that we will be measured against. And I understand that uh, many people will say, you know, I don't like thinking about a God of judgment. You know, it sounds all judgy to think about God judging me. But the wise do not live their life like that. If you, you know, Ecclesiastes is, is a book of wisdom in the Bible. And it tells us that your life is like vapor. It is going to disappear. And in the end of this book of wisdom, the final word that Ecclesiastes says to us is this. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The wise do not ignore this immovable reality about life that we are going to face God. And your life will be measured against God's law. And, you know, God's law isn't just about religious stuff. It's not like, you know, how many pages of the Bible did you read or how many times did you go to church? I mean, God does care about that, that we love his word. But it's really about all of our life. You know, Samuel here is talking about his work as a political leader, and he's a warrior, and he's a judge, and he's a pastor. All of your life is religious, and everything is either done for you to serve yourself or to glorify God and for the good of others. Your work, your family, your sports, your hobbies, your church life, all will be judged according to God's law. And if, you're, if you think, well, you know, I thought Christianity was not about judgment, it was about grace. You can't understand grace until you first face that every place in the New Testament where it talks about final judgment, every single time it says we will be judged according to our works. Let me give you, let me give you two examples. Romans chapter 2. He will re render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Or how about 2 Corinthians 5 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. If you are facing this for the first time, what should be your response to the reality that you will one day appear before God? It should be sobering. The Bible says the wise are God-fearing. Now you might ask, so what do you want me to do? You want me to cower in fear my whole life, waiting for this final judgment that's going to come and I'm going to have to stand before the maker of heaven and earth and tremble before him? Should I just be in fear my whole life? Well, it turns out, no, the Bible doesn't want that. But the way to live without fear is not by pretending that final judgment isn't going to happen. That's not the way to live without fear. And so that leads to our second point. So first, your life will be measured against God's law. Second, your life will be measured against God's acts of salvation. 
Your life will be measured against God's acts of salvation. And in this passage from 1 Samuel 12, there's basically three people that are under trial. So you first have Samuel, and he says, look at my life from my youth to the end of my life. Measure it against God's law. But the second person who is kind of on trial is the Lord himself. And you see that in verse 6 where it says, And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of who? Of the Lord that he performed for you and your fathers. And so in this judgment scene, we don't just hear about Samuel. We don't just hear about the people. We also hear about what God has done, God's acts in the world. And the main righteous deed is the exodus, is his act of salvation that the Lord rescued Israel out of slavery. You see in verse 8 where it says, When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of, the, out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. An important part of this trial is that it's not only the things that we do for God, but the things that God has done for us. And in the record of what God has done, the thing that's really emphasized particularly is his grace to sinful people and how they would always turn away from the Lord and he would shepherd them. And uh, they would turn to other gods and it would make their life miserable and the Lord was always there when they turned back to him. Look at verse 9. But they, brought, but they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them, and they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And God's faithfulness looked like he would send them saviors. See, that's what he says in verse 11. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. So they were unfaithful, and God sends them saviors so that they can dwell in safety. And the message over and over is God's grace and faithfulness to save and rescue sinful people. And he is regularly bidding them to humble yourself and come to me. Now, that is really the key to understanding final judgment. Humble yourself and come to me. Because I think it's possible for people to think that God is petty and perfectionistic. I've even heard this. You know, Christians talk about how God is so holy that if you do even one sin, you will be sent to hell because he, he demands perfect obedience from us. And you could get the impression that it's basically like, God says, you know, if you even get only 98%, 98% is a fail in God's classroom, and he only wants 100%. And that's really strange to think of God that way. I mean, the fact is, if you have a heart that can even do one sin, you have a heart that will do a million sins. There is no such thing as one sin. And, you know, a better picture is something like this. You imagine... Let's say that you have 30,000 days in your life. Say that's 83 years. Maybe it's 20,000, maybe it's 30,000. I don't know. Let's say you have 30,000 days in your life. And the question is, can you produce out of 30,000 days even one day 
where you can say, I have loved the Lord my God with all of my heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love my neighbor as myself. Even one day out of 30,000. We can't produce one day. It's not that we got 98% and that wasn't good enough for God. It's a question, can we even come up with 1% of this test that God, God is not perfectionistic. His record is century after century of giving grace to sinners. And so the main question on final judgment is not did you do the law of God perfectly, is how did you respond to God's grace and the saviors that he sent to you when he sent his grace? And because, oh yeah, God sent all these saviors to the people, God's children in the Old Testament. Well, he sent us a savior. That's what we're celebrating in Christmas, that his own beloved son has come to us sharing in the misery and frailty of human life and all the sins, all your 30,000 days of sins multiplied by billions of people, all of those sins have been laid on the back of Jesus and he's carried them to the cross and suffered for them. And he's risen from the dead to conquer death itself. And so when, so when we say your life will be measured against God's acts of salvation, these are the acts of salvation. And so what this means is that you have two options. Either you will stand before God on your own. And the proud heart says, I don't need anyone. I'm sufficient for myself. I stand by the things I've done in my life. If that's you, I stand by the things I've done in my life. I don't need anyone. I don't need any grace. I'm giving you a warning today. You will not make it through the judgment. Or... You will stand before God not alone, but with Jesus. And you will admit, Lord, in, in the 30,000 days that you've entrusted to me on this earth, I can't even produce one where I did not betray you in some way. And yet you've sent your son to me as a savior. And though I'm a sinner, I love him. I believe in him. That is the posture of humility. Your life will be measured against the gospel. The humble say, I need it. I'm lost without the gospel. But the proud say, I don't need it. And the line by which the human race is divided is how the humble and the proud respond to the grace of Jesus. And you might ask, well, what happens to the humble and the proud on the last day? Hear this clearly. Your eternal destiny rests on this question, what will happen to the humble and the proud on the last day? And in many places, Jesus himself is clear that those who humble themselves, God will receive to dwell with him forever. And those who harden themselves against the Lord will be sent into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the words that Jesus used are eternal destruction. Psalm 5 says, the proud will not stand in your presence. But Isaiah 66 says these amazing words. All, the Lord says, all these things my hand has made. So all these things came to be, declares the Lord, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The gospel divides the world into the humble and the proud. That's the key division of judgment. Now, you might hear, uh, and this might create some confusion for you because maybe points one and two seem to be saying different things. Point one says your life 
is going to be measured against God's law. And point two says your life's going to be measured against God's acts of salvation, against the gospel, what Jesus has done for us. Which is it? Well, it's both. And I think those two points are reconciled in this third point. That your life will be measured against God's grace. Your life will ultimately be measured against God's grace. And it's an important thing about grace is that grace does not ignore sin. Grace does not say, oh, you're not that bad. Don't be so hard on yourself. You don't have that many sins. Grace says you're worse than you think. But in Jesus, you are way more loved than you can fathom. And what we've seen in this passage is that the first trial looked at, at Samuel and he was judged according to God's law. And the second trial is the Lord and his deeds of salvation that he's done for us. But the third trial now turns to the people. And you see in verse 19, it says, And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And so these people realize how sinful they are and they're cowering in fear before the Lord. We're going to die. He's going to judge us and kill us. And then there's this amazing line in verse 20. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. I think that's such a strange passage. He admits, yes, you have done all this evil. But do not be afraid. How can those two things go together? Verse 22 tells us, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Your salvation is about God's name becoming great. And he wants a people for himself. He wants that. And so I'll tell you what this means is that on the last day, all our sins will be named. They will all be judged. And if you stand alone, you will have to pay for all of those sins, those 30,000 days of sins. And to be alone in that moment, you will experience fear and shame that you can sincerely, sincerely cannot imagine. But for those of you who stand in Jesus, your sins are going to be named also, all of them. They're going to be named publicly. They're going to be judged. But your sins are going to be judged, forgiven because of the blood of Jesus. And sin after sin that you'll hear, and you'll feel the weight and pile of them growing, this sin forgiven by the blood of Jesus, this sin forgiven by the blood of Jesus, sins you didn't even know of, that you were forgiven for, forgiven by the blood of Jesus. And this will be public. All your sins will be public. Angels and the redeemed people of God will hear all your sins and they'll hear over and over, forgiven by the blood of Jesus. And the magnitude of the debt that has been paid for you, you will feel more and more. And the amazing thing is that on the last day, God will take all the sins that you have done in your whole life and use all of them to make Jesus' name great. Every sin will be used to glorify Christ. And you will blush and you will weep. And as you're humbled even more, the Almighty will honor you. And alongside your sins, he will then to speak of your service to him. And he will reward you for your service. And you'll be humbled even lower and say, Lord, not to us be the glory. To you alone be the glory. Friends, this is the moment your whole life is moving towards. We ignore it at our peril. As C.S. Lewis put it, in the end, 
that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. Have you humbled yourself before your creator? Have you received the grace of Jesus? Or does your heart say in pride, I don't need God's grace, I don't need anyone? Today can be the beginning where you turn from pride to humility. Today can be the day that you say to Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I tell you, I declare to you, he will. He's received sinners for centuries. He's been patient. Whatever sins you have, he will welcome you. Look, he came as a little baby in Christmas for you because he loves you. He went to the cross and took all your sins because he loves you. Whatever sins, the full debt of them. And when you believe, you have a different view of final judgment. You'll tremble before it, but you won't fear it because you know Christ is sufficient for me. And you'll receive it with joy and you'll say, come, Lord Jesus, come. I long to be in the presence of my creator because Jesus has made a way. Let's pray together. Mighty Father, You are so supreme. What is man that you are mindful of him? Lord, we are in awe that even you would give such attention to our small lives. That our words and our actions matter to you. Lord, that is a statement of both our dignity, but, but also um, that is sobering. We know how careless we've been with our words and our actions throughout our life. And Lord, we tremble that they will all be named, the sins that have been done in secret. And so Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray for those who are here who do not know the grace and the forgiveness that are, that's in Christ. Lord, turn our hearts to him. And as the great weight of our sin has been carried by him, may we feel peace and relief and hope. May we be humbled. And above all, may all glory be given to you. And may we be able to face our sins, not just when they're named on the last day, may we be able to face them now because Jesus has paid for them. That we might repent and turn to you and know your life. But Lord, we long to be welcomed into your presence. We long for the day that you'd receive us into glory. Give us endurance until that day, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.